Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Uh, Connor here. Welcome back to Earned, where we try to bring you all of the top players that are disrupting beauty and fashion. Uh, we are incredibly lucky today to have Ruben Carranza join us, who might know more about the hair care industry than anyone else in the world, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and is valiantly leading uh, Kate Somerville as the CEO now. Uh, welcome to the show, Ruben. Thank you, Connor. It's great to be with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I was telling you this before we started the call, but you are a quite an impressive fellow, my, my friend. Uh, your accomplishments are, are staggering. <sighs> You, uh, boy, you're you're really buttering me up. This is gonna be a grilling. I'm I'm, I'm anticipating. <laughs> well, this is how you, as an interview, you kind of make them really feel really nice, and then you, uh, you know, then you then you drop the hammer. Uh, sure. No, no, no. Um, Thank so you. Just for those that don't know, Ruben, um, here's a few of Ruben's accomplishments. So, Ruben uh, started at PNG out of school um, and was there for over 23 years. Eventually, becoming the CEO of Wella North America, leading a team of over 500 people. He was then the president of R&Co at Luxury Brand Partners, um, which he took it from basically startup to you know scale in terms of large numbers of revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then joined as the president of Olaplex, Olaplex, which is the number one brand we track typically in hair care uh, from an EMV perspective. And you doubled the business in less than 18 months and then helped to sell the brand for what was a rumored billion dollars uh, <laughs> to Advent. Uh, as well as being the former chairman of the Professional Beauty Association, which I found out has over a million members. Um, and then now the CEO of Kate Somerville, which, you know, in, in 2020, at least from an EMV perspective, is up 77% year over year, while skincare is down 14%. Uh, so, you know, outperforming the market by 91%, which is, uh, you know, I think is we do see, but not often from an established brand who's been around yeah. for a little while, right? So to kind of have that kind of acceleration is is super impressive. Uh, so congrats again on, on all of the success. Thanks, Connor. It's uh, really a great team and a great brand. Um, so let's start out with, you know, I think one of the things that's top of mind for me, before we get into your background and your leadership philosophies and marketing philosophies, um, you know, hot topic right now is the election, right? And I think mm-hmm. now that we are kind of past at least the bulk of the election festivities, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'd love to hear about what your approach was as a brand, you know, you know, you're coming into this election, it's incredibly divisive, you know, there's obviously people that have very strong opinions on both sides of the, the fence there. And if you, you know, you lean one way versus the other, you're likely to, to alienate that group. Um, mm-hmm. How did you guys approach that kind of coming into the election? Was it something you gave a lot of thought to um, during the election and then after the election? What was what was your marketing approach there? Yeah, great question, um, Connor. I mean, I think, you know, we're a brand that operates globally, right? So while we had the U.S. elections that were happening, you know, we operate in the U.K. Um, so there, there was, you know, over the course of the last few years, there's been a lot of political strife there, particularly with Brexit and all of those things. And then we operate within China cross-border. So our approach from a brand standpoint has been to be pretty consistent. We're very apolitical, right? So we don't take as a brand a political stance. We don't um, advocate one way or the other. Um, And that really goes back to the founder, Kate, and her whole philosophy, right? So our brand is all about um, people and skin, right? If you've got skin and you have a concern or you have a need, we want to be the brand that helps you with, with all of that. 
What I would say that was, I think, a bit different this year was, um, you know, a lot of the activities that started to happen with Black Lives Matter and the whole push on diversity was already something that we were looking at from a brand standpoint in mm -hmm. terms of how do we, you know, if we really are living to the mission of serving everyone, regardless of their skin tone, we needed to make sure that we were also reflective of that in the people we were working with, the makeup of our organization, et cetera. So a lot of that was already in process. Um, and I think we participated right away when um, some of the activity started with Black Lives Matter, um, as well as Put Up or Shut Up. Yep, um, that yep. was already part of who we were as a company. Um, and so, you know, we know we've got work to do and, uh, and also with who we're working with. And that was probably from a marketing standpoint, it wasn't a marketing staff, but it was more DNA of the brand. But that was one of the elements um, that was a bit atypical in the political environment because mm -hmm. those things really came to fruition, right? And that's that's we we embraced the challenge of of really being a brand that is for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's a tough it's a tough situation knowing whether to take a stance or not, um, and kind of how to approach that, particularly when, like you said, we are an apolitical brand. We don't have you know one side or the other right. here. So right. yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So let's let's kind of start at the top with your background. So, you know, while I was researching you and researching your family, and I'm sure this is the blight of all twins, but, you know, of course, I compared you to your twin. Uh, so your twin brother uh, is the, I believe it's a chancellor and director of, the, of education at the New York City School District, which is really awesome. And I think, you know, comparing you to or looking at you two, right, your accomplishments are, are super impressive. Um, you know, would you say your parents had a particular secret to, to raising two people that were so successful or, you know, what, what was the, uh, I, I've got kids right now, I've got two myself, so I want to make sure that I'm uh, doing everything that I can to, you know, to raise them like you guys. Uh, thank you. Well, that's a big compliment, Connor. Um, you know, honestly, we... You know, we, my brother, my, he's my identical twin brother. Uh, again, he leads, he's the chancellor of New York's, New York schools, the five boroughs. So I think it's a yep. million one students that um, are part of the bureau of the school district. So he's got the harder job, quite honestly. Um, <laughs> but you know what? It really just comes down to, you know, we, we have a huge extended family uh, in Arizona where we were born and raised, but uh, it was just my brother and I in our immediate family. And you know, working class parents. My mom was a hairdresser. My dad was in sheet metal construction. And they really just had a couple of key things that they pounded into us. It was, um, you know, go to school and get an education and work hard, right? And, and be, mm -hmm. you know, and, and don't take for granted the opportunities you have in front of you and, and work hard. So that's always been kind of part of what uh, what we've done and, and how we've done and, and how we've chosen to kind of progress. But you know, I do have to say that I've got better hair than him, and I'm a little taller than him. So <laughs> you can compare all you want. He's a little older than me, but <laughs> well, you know, after all the years in the hair care industry, I would hope that you have better hair. Exactly. I, and I will say, commentary, you have fantastic hair. I think you and Aurelian are like number one A and one B for best hair we've interviewed so far. I certainly do not qualify. I think I've had the same haircut since I was in seventh grade. Um, I, should probably, I should probably rethink uh, considering the number of professional hairstylists that we interact with. Um, it's working for you, Connor. Go with it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, that that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I, I obviously latch on to the, the kind of the work hard thing. Yeah. And I actually don't know that I, I necessarily had that really early on. I think for me, I actually kind of got by with, you know, I was like a good test taker and, you know, I could kind of slide by without having to work hard. And mm -hmm. so I think I almost reveled in that a little bit. Like, I don't have to work that hard to do pretty well. 
And then I realized it's like, no, like, you know, like this is actually how you get ahead, right? Especially as things get more and more competitive, right? As you go into high school and college and workforce, you know, that um, if you put in 10% more than the next person, you know, that compounds over time uh, pretty dramatically. Absolutely. And so, um, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, So talk to me about, you know, I think the other thing that stood out as I was looking, you know, looking at your, your background is, um, you know, it looks like this is like the job profile of two different people, right? So it looks like you're doing two full-time jobs all the time, um, you know, with the, you know, the Professional Beauty Association, and you do a lot of mentorship, and then you have all of your, you know, your regular job. So how do you, how do you actually manage your time just day to day? Like what, how do you prioritize things? How do you remain focused? Do you have any like systems there that you use? <laughs> I'm in a constant, uh, constant struggle and search for ways to do that. Um, you know, and it's got, as I've gotten older, I think you learn how to do it a little better. Um, but you know, what I would, what I would say, Connor, is I think how you spend your time is a choice. And that was one of the first things I had to kind of get my arms wrapped around was, um, if I let the, if I let the calendar or the agenda drive my activities, then I already was lost. Right. So it's Mm. about prioritization and what you want to be those core pillars that are part of your calendar. Um, and that includes time for yourself. Right. Um, And then it's where do you want to be spending your time? Because, you know, I'm one of those individuals who I could sit on the couch and watch, you know, a whole season of Housewives of Beverly Hills and not even think twice about it. Right. But um, and I still do that as guilty pleasures. Um, But there's also, you know, when I think about, you know, at the end of this time period, what do I want to feel good about? Am I contributing to my community? Am I contributing to my industry? Am I contributing to my family? Am I contributing to my spouse? Those questions, right, kind of is what keeps me honest about stuff. Um, and, you know, we learned how to multitask very early. So I'm, I'm a professional musician. My brother was a professional musician. Um, yeah. And we started performing young. So, you know, we would go to school, we'd have to do homework, and then we'd perform and practice and those kinds of things. And in the weekends, we'd be performing. Um, so I think learning how to make those choices and, you know, my parents are both deceased now, but when they were still alive, they would say part of their strategy was keep us focused in school and keep us busy outside of school so that we didn't have any opportunities for dis- for bad distractions. Right. So yeah. I think that's also played a role in it, but it, it really does come down to choice. Right. You make a choice around what's important um, and then you try to calendarize that and make sure that you're giving yourself the, the, the proper guardrails, if you will, um, to live the choices you're making. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of that. I mean, I think for me, I try to, on a regular basis, just look at my calendar and say, is this reflective of like how I want to be spending my time, right? Or what, not how I want to be, but what is the, the best way to be spending my time yeah. and to give that thought, right? On a regular basis, like, Hey, let's, let's write down, like, what are the three or four things that I should really be focusing on right now? Right. And then am I spending my time in a way that, that contributes to those, right? So that's great. I'm also glad to know that you have a third profession as well. Uh, so you've got so now I've got three full time jobs that you're doing, uh, <laughs> which I would love to hear you guys. I think you play mariachi, right? That's, correct. Uh, yeah. Correct. Correct. I, uh, I didn't. I didn't go that far in my research. I didn't listen to. I didn't realize there was stuff I could probably find online with you guys playing. But uh, I think that's going to have to be a follow up item for me. Um, you're really good, Connor. You really did the due diligence. I love that. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's, uh, 
I hope that you know you spend time beforehand so that when you get in, it's it's easier and you're you're hitting the stuff that matters, right? Right. Right. Um. So okay. Well, let's let's continue along the journey, okay. right? So you were at PNG. I think the thing that's always been interesting for me about PNG is their their management program was really kind of mythologized, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think particularly during the time that you were there, um, like it's just something that was you know kind of uh, a part of the the management lore, so to speak. Correct. Right. And so can you tell me a little bit about that program, mm-hmm. maybe how it contributed to your success, what it looks like, some of the lessons that you've drawn from it? Because I think you've, you've obviously built a career off of you know, building culture and process and managing people. Right. I'd love to hear about that a little bit more. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. In fact, one of the, one of the reasons that I chose to go to P&G was because right out of college was because of the training program. And it was actually mm-hmm. my dad who, you know, in the conversation, I had a couple of different offers. And, you know, one of the things that he said was, this is a blue chip company. They have a training program. Even if you don't stay for a career, you will learn things there that you won't learn anywhere else. Right. And he was absolutely right with it. So when I joined, I joined as a part of the selling function. Um, and so I had a 52 week training program and literally that was, that is how everything was done, right? So when you joined as a new hire, there was a 52 week plan that your manager was held accountable for, and you were held accountable for, and it literally had learning elements every single week that you would practice, you would get evaluated on, and there was a formal sign off process related to it, right? And it was everything from... How do you walk into a physical retail location and quickly get a scan on where the opportunities are, where the um, you know where there are issues? How do you build collaborative relationships? How do you negotiate? How do you turn a no to a yes? I mean, on and on and on. And um, but I will tell you, you know, it's been interesting because I think if you were to look at that, um, someone who hadn't been through that would look at that and go, "Isn't that a bit much?" But mm-hmm. having and I had that perspective having gone through it and then having had to grow people in my organization, hire people, train them, take them through the 52 week program, the, the, the repetitiveness and the drumbeat is what I call it. Kind of that consistency of um, how you build capability was really, really important. And it did two things. Number one, it really, you were able to have a very specific set of capabilities at the end of that 52 week um, period Mm -hmm. that were checked off on, but you also knew that anybody who had been through the 52 week program, um, had gotten to a certain level of mastery and that happened in sales that happened in marketing. It happened in product supply. And so kind of part of that whole training dynamic with PNG was, um, you know, some people didn't like it. Some people felt like they wasn't part of what they were about, about there was about a 50% attrition rate, but I will tell you, but I would tell you is that foundation created a completely different dynamic in the organization because if you, for example, when I became a manager and I was looking to hire people or look at people that were transferring from one business to another, I knew that if they had been through this program, I knew all of the capabilities I could count on. It wasn't, I wasn't having to think about, does this person know how to actually do a certain set of financials? Does this person know how to actually carry themselves? So it created an, uh, an equivalization of capability um, that just kind of allowed people to, to, to grow. So, Well, I think what's amazing about that is just 
that that's not like a simple program to put together, right? No, so like no. that's something that took a lot of time and effort and thought. Correct. And you would assume that would be the case within all large multinational corporations, but I, I don't think that's the case. Correct. Um, Correct. And so I'm trying to think if Tribes is if it's either a 52 hour or a 52 day <laughs> training program. I'm not sure. It's somewhere in between those two. I, like, I don't. I think it's more than 52 hours, but I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can help you put together a 52-week one if you need one, Connor, but I think you guys are doing just fine. Uh, we're okay. <laughs> we can always, always an opportunity to get better. I think there's a, there's a really good book. Um, God, I'm blanking on the name. It was from the old 49ers coach. And basically what he did was when he first came in, I think it was Bill Walsh, when he first came in, he wrote up like a really extensive kind of manual for every single position in mm -hmm. the entire organization, all the way down to, you know, the people answering the phones, right? The receptionists. Right. And just like, this is how you answer the phone. This is what, you know, like, and it kind of reminds me a lot of what you're talking about. Right. And, um, and then it gave everybody like, this is what you'll be measured on. This is how you'll be successful. And it's like, it sounds straightforward, but the time and effort he put forward there was just, it was transformative for them as an organization. Correct. Um, and I think it's now, you know, you're seeing a lot of people use that to, you know, uh, transform their own organizations, whether it's nonprofit or profit or whatever. Right. Right. Um, so, pretty cool. The only other comment I was going to make is I will. I would say that I think anybody who leads an organization, whether they're an entrepreneur or in a big company, should start as a sales rep or should have a selling experience in their in their in their experience set. You know, I used to have to make eight to ten calls a day. I was selling Folgers coffee, right? And I thought. I went to university, I was the student body president at the university, and now I'm selling you know, Folgers coffee to people who are saying no to me every day. And it really was, on, on an average, right? It was like literally, you're getting told no eight times a day. And by the end of the first kind of three months, you were like 50-50, you, know, you were figuring out how to turn <laughs> the nose. And then you started getting even better than that. And what better, experience, right? I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're getting told no multiple, multiple times. The people who are successful, the managers who are successful in an organization, whether it's a corporate or a, you know, an independent business, are the ones who know how to take the no and turn it into a yes. Um, so that's my only kind of commentary I would make. And I, and I said that to, you know, when I had 400 salespeople at Wella, I used to, when we used to do the sales meetings, I used to say the same thing. I started where you guys are at. This is the best learning you can get because you learn how to take a no and turn it into a yes. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, honestly, sales, I think just comes down to communication, right? Like, yep. can you communicate an idea? Can you understand what someone's problems are and how to help them through those problems? Um, so I think it's, I mean, it, and if you look at it, just, I think statistically, you know, the most common path to CEO is sales, right? That's yeah. the most common path to being a CEO. And so I think it's a, uh, it's a highly underrated skill set. I mean, I certainly started my career there for sure. Um, well, while we're on the topic of startups, let's talk about RNCO. So yeah. you're at PNG, yep. right? You had a fantastic career there leading massive teams. And we'll talk a little bit about your leadership uh, learnings from those experiences. Okay. Um, but to kind of continue through the background, that's a big leap to go from PNG, yeah. massive PNL to like very entrepreneurial, very kind of startup oriented new company. Um, you know, what were the, what was that transition like? Like what was, what was difficult about it? <laughs> yeah, I, um, so I have 
have to give you once a couple of minutes of context so you understand how I okay, made that transition, okay. right? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, when I left PNG, it was uh, after 24 years, right? And the last eight years of those, I was leading the well of businesses in North America, which were really like independent company, an independent company under the auspices of the big PNG world, you know. The, the customers we had, the way that we went to market was unlike any other business in PNG, with the exception of the professional pharmaceutical part of our business and the veterinary sciences part of our business, right? So we're calling with independent business owners, et cetera. But it really, I was operating, I felt like I was operating in a company that was kind of part of PNG, but completely outside of PNG. When I left, the reason I left was um, I had gotten to the point where it was time for me. I had already, you know, typically at the level that I was at with leading Wella, you spend three to four years in those kind of roles and then they move you on, right? I was now entering into eight, year number eight. Um, and, you know, the, the next opportunities were promotions, but quite honestly, there was, there was stuff I didn't want to go do. Like my heart yeah. and soul was in beauty. Um, and that was one part of it. The second part of it was I had created, um, so, you know, because I was operating kind of independently, um, I was also doing some things that, that would have been very difficult to do in the mainline business. So I had one of the best professional hair color lines with Colostone Perfect under Wella, but I didn't have a professional hair care line that could compete if I was going into a salon that was carrying Majorel from L'Oreal and Kerastase. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was constantly, my organization was constantly, and I couldn't get the resources to kind of create this thing. And so um, what I ended, what ended up doing is actually reaching out to the uh, CEO of Orbe Haircare at the time, the two co-presidents, uh, Dan Kaner and uh, Ted Finger, and said, listen, and one of our salon owners, mutual salons had kind of put us together. And I said, listen, I've got the same issue you've got in reverse because they were going into salons that were carrying Kerastase. They were saying, yes, we want to take on Orbe, but we need something to replace Majorel, right? Mm. So we formed an alliance and we worked that alliance for the last three years that I was at Wella and it worked phenomenal for us. Um, but I had gotten to the point when it was, you know, where I was like, I really don't want to go back into the mainline business. I really do want to be an entrepreneur because I was seeing so many consumer driven insights related to products that we just were missing the boat in PNG, right? I, I, I will tell you at the time, one of the conversations was, you know, every single stylist and consumer was talking about sulfate-free, paraben-free shampoos and conditioners. And I had, you know, a lineup of R&D people in P&G who were saying, you know, trying to convince me that that wasn't a real issue, right? And I was like, you know, mm. I'm, I'm right about the age that the next half of my career, I've done the corporate, I wanna be an entrepreneur. So when yeah. I told I told my you know my colleagues at uh, Orbe that I was doing this, they're like, they like, you're not going anywhere else. You're going to come work with us because we are literally forming this company called Luxury Brand Partners. Orbe will be part of it, but we need to. We're launching a couple of other brands, and we need you to you know we want you to come and kind of lead one of these businesses. So that's how I made the move into entrepreneurship. I will tell you mm. that what I have found is I've talked to some of my colleagues who have been at PNG. I think my transition was a little easier because I was already operating in a business that was kind of off the main line in PNG. So you had to be scrappy. You had to, you know, think about some of the things that you might not normally do um, in the traditional business, but it was still a pretty big surprise. And, you know, so that, that whole idea of you're an entrepreneur and Friday's payroll, like, can you pay <laughs> people on Friday? 
that was probably the single biggest thing I felt in the first 30 days. I was like, holy shit, we, this is true. We've got X amount of capital. We got to get to X amount of scale. And if we don't, how are we going to pay people, right? So yeah. that whole Friday's payroll piece was a really big deal. The other thing that I, that I learned was I had all these incredible ways of doing things and processes, right? But in the real world, you needed to make those really simple. Right, because you yeah. didn't have ten people that could go do the complexity of what you were doing in the PNG world. So, learning how to right size and make the right choices, I think, was the other piece. And then the third piece was, and quite, quite honestly, was probably along with Friday's payroll. This was probably the other big surprise was being able to understand people's skills and capabilities that you had in the organization or were bringing in the organization. And I say that because remember what I was talking about that 52 week training program, right? Yeah. I knew in P&G when I was recruiting for a brand marketer or a marketing director or a director of finance, there was a certain level that, that those roles were at. And I knew that the candidate pool internally, I knew that they were all at a certain level of capability because they had come up through the P&G structure. In, an, in the real world, right? Where <laughs> someone may be two years out of school and they've got a VP title, you can't go by the title. You have to mm -hmm. really understand how do you go and understand and really understand not just the title, but what was the work and what was the capability this individual built and what are they bringing to the table? That was a huge learning for me. Um, that was probably one of the biggest. Yeah, I mean, that's, we obviously have been dealing with that since the beginning, right? We started the company eight years ago. So that's the only world that I know yeah. is like the, I don't know, just because your title doesn't tell me very much essentially, right. Right? right? And so it's interesting that that was a transition, that that was something that was a difficult transition for you because for right. me, that's just life. Like that's just all, the only thing that I know, right? right. right. And so um, that's super, super interesting. Yeah. Um, you also, you, I, I would say that it does go in both directions though, right? So sometimes you get people where like, you know, the title is way ahead of what the capabilities are, but you also get times where it's like, whoa, like this person's way better than we thought they were going to be, right? Absolutely. Like, this person is like, you know, let's accelerate this really dramatically for them. The and so, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the Friday, Friday's payroll is, we don't talk about it very much, but it is a terrifying concept. Um, there have been a, uh, yeah, I mean, we've, yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, so, so talk to me about luxury brand partners a little bit, right? So for me, you know, it's always been a little bit of a mystery, and I feel like I'm learning a little bit here with Orbe, and um, uh, which is to say that you know it got kind of started by them. They wanted to launch more brands, but the the successes that have come out of there, whether it's Becca, which was acquired by mm -hmm. Estee, mm -hmm. Pulp Riot was acquired by uh, L'Oreal, yep. then R and Co and IGK have done really well, right. right? What was the secret magic there? Like, one, why did they decide to do it? And then what, what has caused it to just churn out all of these successes? Because that's yeah. – it's super impressive. Yeah. You know, um, so I, I, um, I, can, I can share with you some of the stuff that's already been in the public domain because I think it's a fascinating story. So some of the initial founders of Orbe – so Luxury Brand Partners um, prior to that was Orbe Hair Care. Right? So it, the founders of Orbe Hair Care were some of the principals that were part of Bumble and Bumble. And when okay. Estee Lauder bought Bumble and Bumble, those folks um, did a transition, then they had a non-compete period, and then they started Orbe Hair Care in 2008 when the recession was had, you know, happening. They rolled off this amazing okay. product, right? And I think the thing that was so powerful about Orbe Hair Care was 
um, and it was kind of going to the history that they had with Bumble and Bumble and working with Michael Gordon is working with founders, these, you know, people who are incredibly brilliant and creative and, and have um, a creative gift is not an easy thing to do. It's not for the faint hearted. And they had learned how to do that with Bumble. When they created Orbe, mm -hmm. they created that brand. Then the same kind of principal founders of, or financial backers um, of Orbe Haircare created Luxury Brand Partners. Orbe was acquired into that. But the whole concept is kind of a brand incubator, right? They were mm -hmm. one of the first mm -hmm. that were doing that. It was, let's find these incredible artists who have incredible stories and have a vision and we build brands that meet a consumer need for that with those artists, right? Orbe Hair Care was one of those first ones with Orbe Canales. Um, mm -hmm. R&Co was the first attempt um, as, as we were talking. And so I joined at the concept stage and it was instead of having one brand, one artist for the brand, can we get a collective, right? Can we do what Andy Warhol used to do and get kind of a collective of artists and actually take one plus one plus one and make it five, right? And that was, mm -hmm. the, that was the ambition. Howard McLaren, who is known, very well known, is still very well known in, um, in the hair cutting industry um, and really came from Bumble and Bumble. Um, Garen, who is like Madonna and only goes by one name, Garen, you know, the godfather <laughs> of hair. Uh, and Tom Priano, who is you know, the men's kind of equivalent, right? And bringing these three artists together to collaborate on a brand was really what to me was really exciting. Um, but you saw with Becca, Becca was part of the organization as well. And, and you know, uh, Bob DeBaker, who's back with Luxury Brand Partners, I thought did some amazing things with Becca. You know, he was, when they had Becca, Becca was not necessarily a big brand. And, you know, he was one of the first to partner with uh, an influencer, Jaclyn Hill. You saw yep. what happened with that collection and the brand blew up. Um, and then, this, you know, partnering with some of the folks like um, David um, um, Thurst, Thorsten and, and his wife and, and how they created Pulp Riot. So it really is about artists, partnering artists with a business idea and creating a brand that really is authentic to who that artist is. And that's at the core. I think what they've started to do now um, in some of the newer brands is those artists who traditionally were either um, industry artists like Howard McLaren or editorial artists like Garen and Orbe are now Instagram folks or social media folks, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, but it's still the same concept, incubating these brands around these great artists. Yeah, I mean, it was a, you know, well-timed theory uh, because I think, you know, one of the things that we used to observe about that dynamic, right, of bringing in the artist and creating a brand around them is if you were to think about so the example I always used was like Anastasia, right? So they obviously mm -hmm. did very well. Um, and I think that for her, if you think about what she did, right, for 20 or 30 years, she did the brows of all of the celebrities in, you know, uh, all the different celebrities, right? And then what happened is Instagram came around and all of those celebrities became the biggest publishers in the world, right? Correct. So now Jennifer Lopez has a bigger audience than Glamour or Pop Sugar or, you know, any of these other publications. And so she basically built these relationships with, you know, dozens and dozens, potentially hundreds of people who are now all the biggest publishers in the world. Correct. And so now you as a celebrity hairstylist, makeup artist, brow artist, whatever it is, um, have this huge advantage that just kind of appeared out of nowhere. Right. Um, to have direct access to the biggest editors at the biggest publications, you know, Yeah, around. absolutely. And so, uh, yeah, it worked out 
quite well for them. Uh, yeah. Good, <laughs> good yeah. timing. Well, and you know, Ted Finger, who's the CEO of Luxury Brand Partners, um, just did an interview with uh, the Glossy. Um, and, you know, I think he was, he, and he, it's very consistent, right? So one of the other dynamics is the, the core partner group, um, they're still my partners. They understood and have understood what it's like not only to build a brand, to hero what an artist is able to do, but also knowing what companies who want to acquire brands are looking for because they've done the sales. So that's the other part of the secret sauce is they're not just building a brand to be creative and go off into the Netherlands. They also know the commercial aspect of what needs to be true. Right. And um, mm -hmm. so and the team that's there knows how to do that. And so it's a, it's an incredibly smart group of people. Yeah, no, it's it's been super impressive to watch it from the outside. Um, so let's talk about Olaplex for a second, and then yeah. we'll get into leadership and marketing philosophy questions. Okay. Um, so, you know, obviously Olaplex is a brand that we've paid a lot of attention to, one of the top performing brands from a social media perspective. Correct. Um, you know, I've got Correct. a little bit of insight into the financials around the business, uh -huh. and I know it is incredibly lean. Uh, the, the profit margins there are... It, obscene, right? So what was it like? What were some of the challenges when you came in? Because obviously you ended up selling it, you know, or it got sold for a ton of money, which is, is awesome. I'd love to hear both about some of the things that made it special. Like why was this such a unique uh, entity? And then what were some of the challenges of being in such a unique entity, right? Being a company that's, you know, got 50 plus percent net income margins. Like what, what is that like? I don't even know what that's like to be at a company like that. <laughs> it, uh, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was interesting so after the orbe sale um right yeah. and now arinco is the biggest brand in uh in lbp um you know with the conversation with the with the partners you know obviously we we weren't arinco wasn't to the level that we needed that orbe was in terms of the contribution and so i said guys perfect time for me to exit on the operational side because i'm a bigger ticket um quite honestly and i want to kind of change my life a little yeah. Um, and so I was started doing some consulting and I was doing some consulting and really starting to get excited about skincare. And that's when Dean and Darcy Crystal called and, you know, they had had the brand, they launched the brand. When I remember when they launched the brand, I was moved, I had just left PNG and was going to, um, um, to LBP, um, Luxury Brand Partners. And, you know, I can do a, I can do a multicolor process, a multicolor hair color process. I mean, I learned how to do hair color as uh, when I was part of Wella. And I remember the buzz around Olaplex. And I remember having a couple of hairdressers who used the product and they were like, this is the real deal. This stuff really, <laughs> really works. And so yeah. I knew that they had an amazing product that actually did what it, what it said it did, it was going to do. Um, and had very quickly scaled in a very non-traditional way, right? Which is yep, kind of at yep. the, in, in that time. So, but when I got the call from Dean and Darcy, they, they were calling because they said, listen, we don't have a corporate office. We have people around the country. We don't, you know, we're, we're not, we don't have a lot of process stuff. Purposely, we've tried to keep that uh, from doing that. But we know that there's some big opportunities that we're missing. And quite honestly, now that you're not in another job, like we need someone who isn't going to come and try to make us a, a L'Oreal. And we need someone who knows enough that can come in and say, we need to put this infrastructure in. We need to do this. We need to do that. 
not change who we are, but make us a little more professional. And then ideally, you know, Sephora has been knocking on the door. We have no idea what to do there. And so we mm-hmm. need to figure out how to do that. And so that was the brief, if you will, when I came in. Um, I loved it because we had moved to Austin, Texas, where we were going to plan to retire. And um, they're like, hey, there's no corporate office. So you can do this out of Austin. I was like, fantastic, right? Yeah. Um, when I finally saw how lean the business was, you know, it was, it was an interesting conversation. And so my, my <laughs> conversation with Dean and Darcy, with Dean at the time was it's like, Dean, there's not a, like, there's not, we're not going to corporate, make this a corporate thing, but you kind of loosen up a little. Cause there's some things we got to do. Like you kind of need a demand planner so that you have inventory. Like we really, if you're going to really, you know, make, we're going to make the move and really partner with Sephora. We need to bring someone in who really knows how to do Sephora. And by the way, you probably have to get comfortable in doing travel size um, SKUs because that's part of the ecosystem of how you build trial and, re- and repeat. By the way, the distributors on the salon side have been asking for that for years and he was like, we're not going to do it. So it was a bit of bringing um, the right, the just, just in time capabilities that could show a return that started allowing us to do a little th- a few things that were different and a few things that were more. But, um, you know, one of the things that I would say is if Dean and Darcy hadn't sold the business, I think, um, I think the trajectory would have continued to grow because the, the thing about it that I think is so special is it's a product that works. It does exactly what it's going to do and it's powerful. Mm-hmm. It can, it, it can play with, it can play with anybody's hair. Like it can literally repair anybody's hair and there's so much upside right in the, in the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we were able to, um, you know, we were able to double that business in, in about a year, a little over a year. Um, and you know, it's exciting to see how good they're doing now. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think, yeah. I mean, I remember it, it had like six SKUs, right? There's like six, like to build a business that big growing that fast off of six SKUs is, is wild. There were right? four when I got there. <laughs> so you increased it by 50%. Uh, that's what you're telling me. <laughs> 50%, 50%. You know, the problem was the challenge was never that there wasn't any innovation. The challenge yeah. was like you, like, and I was used to this, right? It, the challenge yeah. was I've got so many good ideas. Which ones do I go with first? Right. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. Um, and because the team was so lean and because it was a husband and wife team as well, who owned the company, sometimes those battles that like some of the decisions that were made in the first 30 days had been discussions that had been happening for years with the company. Uh, but it was, I was the new guy who came in and say, why are we doing a shampoo and conditioner? Like, mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm, don't you mm-hmm. think we got it ready? We should launch it. Let's, let's go. Um, yeah. so it was some of those kinds of things too. So yeah, but, a, but a great brand. Um, I think they created, they created a very different business model globally when they launched, as you know. Um, and so, yeah, it was really special time. Um, so let's talk about leadership and your approach for a moment. So, you know, I kind of, uh, condensed it down into a few different maxims. Tell me if this is a good, you know, an accurate representation of how you think about leadership. Mm -hmm. So surround yourself with, with the best, right? So recruit star performers, um, treat people with respect, sometimes Mm -hmm. having to be brutally honest. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and then, you know, being a leader is about setting the vision and trying to be a humble servant for those that, that work for you. Is that a pretty good, pretty good summation? I think that's, you nailed it. So what, how did you come up with that? How did that, is that something that you just kind of, those, did you come by those learnings over time or is this, um, yeah, where, how did you come up with those in the first place? I think it was, so part, a lot of it is 
who I am as a person, right? So my, mm-hmm. my parents always talked about the golden rule, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. The first boss I had at PNG, interestingly enough, also used to talk about that, right? Like, you know, you treat mm-hmm. people with respect, um, et cetera. Um, so that was kind of who I was. Um, I had a boss at PNG that was the complete opposite of that. Loved mm. to, to throw things, loved to yell, loved to belittle people. Um, um, you know, he didn't last long in the organization. But I also remember I I lived through early in my career being someone who was in a team led by someone like that. And I hated it. And I would, you know, instead of me thinking about what are the ways that I can bring even more value, I used to think about how can I just do the bare minimum so I can get the hell out of Dodge? Because this mm-hmm. person is just going to be a nightmare, right? And that was probably the, the, the first time that I was actively aware of um, you know, you hear the, the, um, the wife's tales, you get, you, you get more flies with sugar or you attract more, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's yeah. true. I mean, you create an environment that is, um, that's challenging, it's fun, but you, there's respect and respect isn't just being nice. Respect is also having the courage to have tough conversations, having the courage to hear tough feedback from your employees to you as the leader. What I found was those environments created much more acceleration um, than it than the other, right? And so part of it is, uh, you know, kind of when I finally got to a place where I was leading an organization, I was like, well, I want to lead in, I want to be a member of an organization that I would want to be a, be a part of, even if I wasn't the leader of that organization, right? Um, and so it's always been about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's just so much there, right? So I think first, working for an asshole is not fun, right? It's just not not an enjoyable experience. And so I haven't had that experience, but I could imagine that being pretty, having a big impact on yeah. like how you act in the future. Um, I think that second, you know, for me, I think I have, I can receive, I think I'm pretty good at receiving tough feedback, but I don't think I'm particularly good at giving it, right? Mm-hmm. I think putting that perspective of, um, you know, this is a respect thing. Like I'm here, I respect you and I, I trust that you're going to be able to hear this and you know, that it will be productive. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a really cool way of framing it, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, that makes a, makes a ton of sense. I had something else too. Oh, what was it? Uh, oh, that was it. So, you know, the other thing too, that people don't really think about is, you know, this isn't the only job you're ever going to have, right? Careers are actually pretty long. And so if you treat people poorly, um, you know, number one, they're going to leave. Number Mm -hmm. two, they're not going to work with you in the future. And they're also not going to refer other people to work with you. So like, you know, for us, it's like we're we're working on a product for, um, you know, a product for the creators right now. And we had no capacity internally to do it. But, you know, we had two of our former engineers who had left to start their own companies. And I was like, hey, guys, they're very entrepreneurial. I'm like, hey, guys, I really want to get this product off the ground. You know, would you be willing to commit two or three months to getting this off the ground with me? Right. And even though they didn't work with us anymore, right. like, yeah, because they had a great time working with us the first time. And they know that they can trust, you know, they trust how we work. And, and you know, that if we had been jerks to them, they never would have been open to doing that. And that's, you know, that's just the first decade of my career. We got three more decades that's an that's an army that you can build up over time that is super powerful absolutely i always talk about this um with my organization i talk about it with my direct reports i talk about it with new hires your reputation is your calling card 
And if you're just starting your career, that's a hard one. You can like, yeah, 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 right. Um, but this is a very small industry. And, you know, I still say this today. Um, there, anybody in this industry who's been in the industry for at least a period of time, you're one phone call away from someone getting the real scoop on who you really are and how you really operate. Um, and it, and it, and it's very, very true. I mean, I feel like, you know, one of the things that I think has been helpful for me personally is I feel like I could pick up the phone and call any one of my competitors today, CEOs. I probably know most of them. Um, and even the ones where I may have a direct competitive situation, right? Obviously, we'd never talk about the business, but if there was something I needed to get, I could call and they'd take my phone call because there is a reputation and a trust that's been built over time. But, um, but it does come back to kind of this dynamic of, um, you know, be, being, being, being a good performer and deliverer and being a good developer of talent um, over time, it's, it's the most important thing you can do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, the bigger the organi organization gets, the smaller your individual contribution, right? You're Correct. a smaller and smaller chunk. So yeah, hundred percent. Um, I also, I think I've also tried to pride myself on maintaining good relationships with competitors. Yeah. It's always funny to me when like, you know, they just won't even take your email. And it's not, I don't think it's a reputation thing. It's just like, a, they just don't want to do that, right? They, I don't, I don't totally. want to talk to a competitor. It's like, we're, this is a, sh I don't know, this is going to be a long career, right? Like we're, yeah. and we're probably, there's a strong likelihood we're all going to be in the software industry for the next 40 years. So like, we should probably get to know each other. Like it doesn't have to be so adversarial all the time. Totally. Um, totally. So let's talk about marketing philosophy a little bit. I have a ton of leadership questions I can ask you, and I think I want to go back to that, but I also want to make okay. sure we have time to talk sure. a little bit about marketing. Sure. Um, so for you, you mentioned that there's been a real explosion of marketing analytics over the last, call it 10 years or so, right? Mm -hmm. So the, just the amount of data available has grown dramatically. Um, and then you talked a little bit about, you know, the data that you use as a kind of direct to consumer e-commerce brand versus an omni-channel brand can be quite a bit different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the different data sources that you recommend for, you know, an e-commerce brand versus an, an omni-channel brand? And then how have you managed internally? Because again, you, you kind of have this overflow of analytics. How do you how do you condense that down into the ones that are most important for you guys? Yeah, you know, that's a great that's a great question, Connor. And I think what I would say is we're still on the learning journey because I think every brand, what is important to a brand is individual to a brand, right? But I would mm -hmm. say overall, I think one of the things that we've tried to do is not get overly, not go down the rabbit holes as it comes to analytics, right? We have to have viable analytics, but we also have to make sure that we know what are the questions we're trying to understand unique to our brand that's going to help us move the needle. I think one of the things, um, you know, in the direct-to-consumer um, environment, for us, there's really four kind of general things, and I've heard others on your podcast talk about some of these as well. Um, you know, traffic is critically important. Are you getting, yep. you know, people to your website? What's the conversion rate once you get them there? That's yep. um, obviously important. Um, what's the average order value, the AOV? That's important, yep. right? Um, yep. Yep. And then loyalty and, and repeat are critical factors as a part of that as well. And we're continuously tracking on those elements um, on our on the DTC side, um, you know, where we can with retail partners who are also doing omni-channel in-store and DTC, we're looking at some of the same measures um, as well to see, you know, are we, are we 
not only getting trial of our brand, but uh, of our products, but are the consumers who are trying our products, liking them and coming back and repurchasing and buying even more. I yep, think that's, yep. the funda- that's the fundamentals. Um, you know, what's interesting when I was going into stores, right, as a Folgers coffee sales rep and as a sales rep in, you know, in, in P&G, and then now as a Kate Somerville person who walks into a Sephora, um, you know, when, when you're in store environment, there's, there are some of those things that you look at, you know, brand positioning, um, point of sale, does the brand stand out? So those, a lot of those conversations related to the physical infrastructure have been um, important. But um, I do think that what's going to be interesting as we come out of the COVID situation and as retail gets reinvented, right? Because I, I do think there will be a reinvention in retail. I think for us, what I'm look, what I'm continuously looking at is how is the consumer, the consumer I think will continue to want an experience. They want an experience online. They're going to want an experience in store, but what's that going to look like, right? And how is that going to manifest itself? Um, when you have all of the other elements like hygiene and safety and those kinds of things that I think are going to have a little bit of an aftershock, right? So um, I know I'm kind of talking kind of high level, but I think those are, you know, the the, fun, the kind of the core four of traffic, conversion, AOV, loyalty, repeat. We continuously are looking at those kinds of things and then trying to adjust, you know, what we do um, as a part of that. Yeah. I mean, I know that the kind of loyalty repeat purchase thing is something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I think that number one, probably the best story for it was, uh, I don't know if you know the brand Native Deodorant, right? Yes. But, um, Part know, by P&G. So, yeah, there you go. Tapping my so P&G they, stock. <laughs> so they, uh, so I know Moyes, the founder, and I uh, met him really early on and he got referred to us as like, oh, Connor's the influencer guy, right? Go talk to him. And the thing I told him was, I was like, you know, honestly, I don't see influencers playing a huge role with deodorant, right? It's just not, like, there's not people, like, actively saying, like, oh, I love this deodorant. And, like, let me try this one and that one. There's a little bit of it. And it's yeah. certainly not totally irrelevant. But, you know, it's not to the degree that hair care or fashion or beauty is going to, you know, the role it's going to play in those markets. And, and I think that earned a lot of trust for them because he said, oh, you know, everybody else has been trying to sell me influencer stuff. And he's like, and I've always thought it was a waste of time, but now finally somebody <laughs> tells me it is. And so, uh, but the thing that he did do really well was he focused, just laser focused on his repurchase rate. And Ooh. when he started, the repurchase rate was around 20%. And then, you know, he's like, okay. So, and then over the next, I think it was the next 24 months they had, it was either 18 formulations in 24 months or 24 formulations in 18 months. Wow. They just kept recreating the product. They do a little bit here, a little bit there. Mm-hmm. And then what they would do is they would do A-B tests where they'd say, okay, we're going to sell half of this product, this formulation, this customer, and half to this. And then we're going to look at the repurchase rates. And they just kind of hacked that repurchase rate mm-hmm. until they got it up to 40 plus percent, which like doesn't sound like a lot, but that's double, right? So that means that every dollar you're putting in the top of the marketing funnel, you're getting twice as many dollars out at the bottom. And so... Um, and that's and that's if you're just looking at the immediate repurchase rate, right? That multiplies out over time from yeah. an LTV perspective. And so um, the reason I say we've been looking at it is the exact same thing holds true in the influencer space, right? Yes. If you are, you know, if you're losing half the influencers that you bring in, right? You get them in, they get excited, they talk about the brand, and then it's just crickets after, or there's no follow up from the brand. Bingo. But that is, you know, it just kills the whole process. Bingo. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, talk to me about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, you guys have decided that influencers are, are important for Kate Somerville. Yeah. I would imagine, considering the numbers are, are yes. you know skyrocketing. What what made you come to that conclusion, and then what what do you think has driven your your success there? That's um, yeah, it was very much a, it was very much a choice. Um, and I think you know when I entered the brand, um, I entered at the same time that uh, my CMO Simon entered, right? Because I think you've met Simon, and Simon's incredible. Yeah. He's a great business partner. He and I had some of the same kind of ahas, right? So here was an incredible brand with an incredible founder who was still actively involved, an incredible story, a history of great products and iconic products, an active MediSpa clinic where we were seeing patients, um, but the PR and you know was was had really died down to zero. And mm-hmm. really had missed, you know, candidly, had missed the boat when it came to influencers, right? You yeah. had influencers that were ha- that were growing, et cetera. And so I think it was, we knew that um, we ha- it was a story that needed to be told, but it needed to be told by people who truly, really believed in the brand and bought into the brand. So it's not to say that um, paid influencers weren't going to have some kind of a role. But mm-hmm. but the whole brand was built by Kate when you know when she started the brand and she started it in the clinic she had a lot of you know she had Paris Hilton and all these celebrities who were coming in because of the treatments, um, mm-hmm. right? But who loved the brand because they felt connected to the brand and so we felt like that authenticity and creating a relationship within with the influencer community was going to have to be part of how we approached it. And that's, that was the decision. And we brought the right people, you know, to, to the team that were able, that brought relationships, but also understood that this was about creating that kind of community, right? And mm-hmm. I would tell you, I think, Connor, I think, listen, a lot of brands do that. Um, we're not unique in, in how we do that. But I would say that I think the, the the genuine nature and the focus on the relationships with our influencers has been probably the biggest key to our success so far. Um, and I think as we move into 2021, our focus is not only continuing to do that, but also the repeat, right? Keeping the influencers yep. as a part of the family and feeling comfortable and feeling like they are part of the family. So yeah, it was a choice. That's great to hear. And I think, you know, what's always... <laughs> I don't know if I'm in an echo chamber and I only invite people on the podcast that agree with me, but, you know, every time I talk to somebody and they, you know, they tell me about, you know, and it's a brand that's winning, right? And they say, this is how I'm winning. I'm like, that's what I keep hearing. So, you know, uh, so, but yet not everybody gets it yet. So I think that uh, it's really great to hear. And I think, you know, thinking of these people as people, right, as people yeah. you build relationships with and really thinking about it from, you know, really from a PR perspective where it's like, hey, I'm here to help you, right? Write your stories, create mm-hmm. your content, tell your own story. Let me know how I can support you. And then let me, you know, let's build a real relationship here. Correct. Is the, is the long-term path to winning, right? Correct. Um, so that's really great to hear. How, talking about this kind of, you know, obviously having, you know, a spa or many spa, you know, allows for this face-to-face interaction. How have you guys changed your strategies specifically as it relates to the influencer space now that face-to-face interactions become a lot, you know, a lot less safe and a lot less common? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, our, um, so our, our clinic in, on Melrose Place in LA is, is back open. Um, yep, we're, you know, yep. We were doing the medical procedures probably two months before it became okay for the aesthetic services to open. And our New York City um, clinic is now open as well. What I was going to say is, I think, you know, part of the early, the early part of our journey, um, what I would say was the end of last year and beginning of January before COVID shutdowns, 
it was really getting that curated group of influencers where they were able to not only experience the brand, but have time with Kate. To hear mm. Kate's story, to hear Kate talk about the products, to hear Kate's philosophy. Quite honestly, it was less about the products. It was more about hearing Kate's philosophy around, you know, people who have skin troubles, it affects their entire it affects their entire being. If you can help someone correct their skin, you help them with their whole life, right? And it was that mm-hmm. whole kind of that inspirational piece of it. That probably was the strongest thing we were able to do with the influencers we started working with because they were connecting with the founder and then with the brand heart from the heart, right? When they went and experienced some of the things related to what we could do in the clinic, right? And how those clinic services transpired into some of the products, right? And an oxygen facial, you can take the DQ home with you and it's the oxygen facial in a can. They, that's where it started to make the connection between the heart and the mind. Now I understand why this isn't just marketing, you know, hubba bub. It's like, and then they started making it their own. And that's when you're in the holy grail, when they're starting to talk about the product as a part of who they are and how they, they operate. As we've had to deal with like every brand and not being able to do face-to-face, I think, you know, we've had to be connecting with them um, through boxes and virtually and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, as, sim- as silly as it sounds, Connor, I would say the biggest thing that my team does, which I'm, which I'm so proud of them on, is we just keep the relationship going. There's conversations and communications that happen without any product conversation because I think when you get to the point, if you get to a point where the people who are working with you from an influencer standpoint feel like you only talk to them when you want them to push something, that you don't really know who they are or care about who they are, that's when you get into danger, right? And I think our our brand led by our founder has always been about that heart-to-heart connection, right? And so it's a natural extension of what we've tried to do with our influencers. And, you know, during this time, it's it's been it's been one of the things that I think has been really um, important. We had a major tier one launch this year, um, Delicate, and we couldn't do press events. We couldn't do bring people together. It was all virtually connecting um, and doing it on a global basis, right? Um, when, my, when my friend and colleague uh, Aurelian was talking about what they were doing to kind of create this global infrastructure of how they launch their A's, you know, I've taken, I've, I follow what Aurelian does because they're doing some amazing <laughs> things there. But yeah. we were able to do that with Delicate. And so to have a, a Carolyn Hirons in the UK doing a live with some of the influencers in the UK and Kate, right, all virtually. And then we do the same thing in Australia with Mecca. And we do the same thing in the US with some of our influencers. Like that's when it starts to feel like, what COVID? Like this is, I'm part, of, I'm part of a family, right? And I'm part yeah, of a community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's how we've no. been trying to manage it. I love the integration of the founder. I think that people don't realize that for a lot of these, you know, creators, they are entrepreneurs, right? They're mm-hmm. their own small businesses. And so for them, you know, they aspire to be someone like Kate, right? A lot of these people right. aspire to create their own brand one day. Correct. And so to kind of get that insider access for them is just super powerful and very under leveraged, I think, for a yeah. lot of a lot of brands and founders. So that's really cool and super smart. Um, well, let's get into, you know, we're coming up on an hour here. Okay. We're going to be respectful of your time. So let's, uh, let's do a couple of quick hitting questions uh, okay. that you haven't seen yet. <laughs> so um, let's start out with, uh, we're going to kind of center on the Oscars for a second, right? So uh, I know you're a famed Oscars commentator. Um, and you mentioned, uh, we'll, we'll do that as a second question. Uh, but the first question is, you said that you, uh, 
you know, you like to drink tequila while you're doing the commentating. What is your favorite tequila that I need to try? Oh my God, that is, uh, Connor, that is not an easy question because it all depends. <laughs> I, it's like asking a wine connoisseur, what's the favorite <laughs> wine you should try, right? Um, I think, uh, well, so I, what I would say is if you are a margarita drinking tequila drinker, you probably uh -huh. want to start slower okay. with pure okay. tequila. Yeah, um, yeah. Right. Um, but if, it depends. Do you like woody taste? Do you like non-woody taste? I personally, I'll actually, well, I was going to grab it. I actually, um, I love Añejo, which yep, is, yep. Yeah, I love the Añejos. Um, and the heavier I, oaked stuff. Absolutely. Um, yep. Even bordering on like mezcal. Because I love that woody, dense kind of taste. And now we're getting into the season because it's getting cold. Where like yeah. you can just put on your little your sweatshirt and sit outside and drink your tequila and like it, whatever. But I um, I think it's all, it's kind of like wine. It's what's your what's your flavor palette? Um, and uh -huh, what's your sensibility? Uh -huh. um, the good tequilas you can sip right, and it's you yeah. can really do t taste the flavor. But I um, you never go wrong with it on Yeho. What what fa any favorite brands specifically? Um, you know what? As a brand guy, this is going to sound horrible. I'm promiscuous. Yeah, you just change it up all the time. To me, to me, the people who do tequila are like um, are like um, like 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 the people who do wines, right? I think yep. every single barrel can have its own unique nuance to it, um, and I love the exploration of that. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was talking with uh, is a trying to remember his name. He runs the spirits division at LVMH. Okay. And what they talked about is, so they, people don't know this, but I think they're responsible for like 95% of the champagne in the United States. It's like a crazy <laughs> number, right? And they, um, and they're getting really big into rosé, uh, but they stayed out of red wine because, you know, if you look at champagne as very high repurchase rates yeah. and rosé is the same way, right? People tend to find a rosé they like and then they stick with it. But with red wine, people are very promiscuous, right? They're right. constantly trying new things. So uh, I tend to be that way for almost everything in life. I just like new. I always want to try something new. So uh, yeah, I, uh, I, and I would say love a margarita, but also love a good Añejo. And then I also, I've recently gotten to Mezcal's a little bit. Ah. I was kind of anti at first, but I've, they've grown on me. So you have to be in the right setting with the right mindset and the right yep. people. Yep. Yep. So what's so? Tell me your what's your favorite Oscars memory, or well, the one that your your favorite Oscars comment that you've given over the over the years from watching. <laughs> you know, I had to stop doing that. That won't get you in trouble. That won't get me in trouble. Because <laughs> remember, I, the first time I started doing this, it was because I um, was sitting drinking, and I was like, none of my none, for some reason I had the trip had been canceled, and so I was by myself. And so I just started drinking and just you know doing this whole thing, and I'm, and I'm a pretty big, I'm a little bit of a smart aleck, but. Um, I would say probably the, the the Oscar moment for me that was like, wow, was big was when Halle Berry won an Oscar. Uh -huh. That was a big deal for me. I always, because I always loved Halle Berry and she was the first, you know, woman of color um, to win an Oscar and she looked amazing in that dress. And mm -hmm. I just thought, you know, I just thought, you know, this is, this is pretty cool because it's just, it's, it's a really cool thing. Um, I actually, I mean, we could go hours into all of the uh, hosts that have been with the Oscars because <laughs> there have been some good ones and some bad ones. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I'm, that, I, I'm a little stereotypical in that. To me, the Oscars are about, this isn't the time, I don't believe, the Oscars are the time when you show up and try to be avant-garde. That's like the MTV Music Awards. 
I want you to show up and I want you to look Hollywood. I want you to look glam. I want to know who you're wearing. I want to know who did your hair. I want to know what your makeup is. Like, like that to me is, it's, it's my Super Bowl. So like, yep, I want to, yep. like, that's what's exciting. Right. Um, so. <laughs> well, I know. I, I think I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I appreciate the comedy, right. That they try and integrate for sure. But if it gets over the top and it kind of overshadows the event itself, I don't think that's the point, right? Right, right. Um, okay, last question, and then we'll sign off. So, you know, obviously, I would imagine if you're into the Oscars, you're into entertainment. So, mm-hmm. you know, what's uh, what's your favorite show or movie that you've watched during COVID? Oh, my gosh. There have been so many. We're in month, like, what, nine? <laughs> month nine, Connor? I think it's month 90. I don't know. Oh. I mean, it's all blurred together. <laughs> Do I want to share this publicly? Uh, well, okay, so uh, so there's been a ton on Netflix, right? There's yep, been some yep. amazing stuff on Netflix. I have to say, I was very skeptical about what Apple was TV was going to do, um, uh-huh, and I loved uh-huh. um, the news the newscast show that Jennifer Aniston did. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I haven't watched it. Yeah, amazing. It okay. is absolutely amazing. It's worth doing it like in one fell swoop. It was amazing. So I've seen, um, so obviously that, I watched through all that. I did a ton of um, series on Netflix. There's a couple that I will be open about because I'm, because this is horrible. So I'm a, <laughs> like, I'm an unapologetic Real Housewives franchise devotee from the very beginning. And it, and initially I watched the first one because it's how I would have conversations with hairdressers when I walked into a salon, right? Ah, but okay. I love it, all right? And so... Over the COVID timeframe, I had stopped seeing some of this, but with On Demand, I've, I've gone back and I've caught up on every season of The Real Housewives, on Bravo, of The Real Housewives, all of the Below Deck episodes, and this is horrible. This is the embarrassing part. I'm now into the TLC channel, right? So like oh, wow. 90 Day Fiance, <laughs> yeah, 90 yeah. Day Away, I'm like, what am I doing, right? <laughs> But, but it's not a spreadsheet. It's not an issue. It's just something different, it's just right? Yeah. Different, right? And I can sip my tequila when I drink, when I watch it. <laughs> yeah, nuts. My wife has gotten really into, and then subsequently I watch it a bit, is the uh, Married at First Sight. Have you seen that one? Oh my God. You know what? I've, I've prohibited myself from seeing that one. <laughs> oh my it's- God. It's so ridiculous. They get married like the day they meet each other like at the wedding and then they decide whether they want to stick together the wild thing is i think it has like a higher success rate than like the bachelor or bachelorette or any of these other shows it's like it's like a 25 percent success rate like one out of every four just stays married for wow know, for the whole time that's pretty crazy but um <laughs> with that we'll wrap it up with our terrible our terrible shows <laughs> um and uh thanks so much for joining i really appreciate it i think i learned a lot today we only got to half the questions i had which is frustrating <laughs> But, you know, maybe we'll have to have you on again. And uh, Anytime, yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we love, um, I, I have to tell you, we're big fans of, uh, of Tribe and your team. Um, and we're really excited about the momentum that, that you guys are helping us do. And um, it's any time. Maybe, maybe one of these times you'll get a few of us together and it'll be a real show. Like, I we'll, like that. We'll do some smart alecky stuff. <laughs> I dig it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ruben. Thanks, Connor. Take care. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.